Welcome to another episode of Mastermind Discussions. I'm your host, Matthew LaCroix. And today on episode number six, we'll be doing a special live show I'm calling Fireside Chats, where we'll be I'll be taking your questions and we'll be getting into some good discussions and I'll be doing the best I can to answer you to the best of my ability. If there's something that I don't know, I'm not going to just try to answer it if I can't. I want to try to be genuine. Um, there's always so much more to learn and I think that's probably the number one rule to go with here. So a little background on why I was going to, I'm calling it Fireside Chats. I may end up taking this and just putting the audio into a nice image with a fire in the back, just so it's a little more genuine. That's what I originally had intended, having a great fire in the back of me on my, on my green screen, but I couldn't quite get technological side of that to work out. So apologies for that. So the reason I'm calling this Fireside Chat is I wanted a little bit more of an intimate experience where when we look today at when we're all sitting around and we're having discussions trying to uncover truth, which I know are, are more and more rare these days, right? How often are we able to be with a conscious group around us where we can just sit down and share ideas freely and not have people judge us based on these predetermined conclusions that a lot of people have been misled and taught. And so I, I'm calling this a fireside chat for, because it's live and it's, we're going to be having a discussion with everybody here, but also because I think beyond just someone you know, imparting knowledge and, and having a discussion. The other key element that needs to be present for a higher conscious teaching is the environment. And that's where I get this concept of a fireside chat. And I mentioned that in my previous books, The Illusion of Us and the Stage of Time, this idea that the environment is very important too. Having something free and void of all these noises outside, these cars honking and ambulances going by and just being under the stars. In a, in a setting that's conducive for um, a good higher conscious discussion where, you know, we're not being held back by all these, these distractions all around us that really hold us back from having that kind of mindset. So that's where I am trying to go with this. Um, and I'll see how I want this video to turn out after we're done this, this show. So I want to give everybody a few updates on what I've been up to and what's coming up in the future before we start getting into some of these discussions. Bear with me. I've never done this before, and I'm going to be reading through some questions as we go, and then I'm going to be picking them out. And we'll see if we can get a, a good discussion going back and forth on some of these topics. So I guess what have I been up to? Well, quarantined, obviously, like a lot of us in our homes, trying to get out, doing a lot of walks, trying to get out into nature, not being you know, closed up inside the house, just, you know, sitting around and on, especially on days like today where it's pretty dreary, it's not a very nice day, but people like you, these individuals, all these highly conscious individuals that have joined me helps to get through these tough times like this. Um, so I was originally supposed to have Brian Forster this month on mastermind discussions, but all his flights were canceled to his hometown in Peru. And so therefore we had to move that show to May and then a couple other people were canceled. So I just thought, well, rather than not doing a show right now, might as well do something a little bit different. And that's, so that's what today is all about. Now, a lot of you sent some great questions and I'm going to, I think the best way to start would be, um, Hey Troy, good to see you. I think the best way to start would be to I guess read through a couple of the questions that were already asked previously, and then we can build off from that. And so the first question, and I've, I've had this asked by quite a few people, and of course, 
don't just take my opinion for it. Do your own research. Like, like I always say for everything, always be objective with everything in your life, especially my own words as well. And the first question comes from multiple people online on through the community YouTube chat on my channel, which I highly encourage people to check out, uh, Matthew LaCroix. The first question comes into, well, what are these handbag symbols that are shown all around the world? When we look at these T-shaped pillars in Gobekli Tepe in Turkey, we see these symbols of this handbag. And there's usually shown as multiple versions of those handbags. And that's not just one, one location we find that. The reason why this is such an important question is because all throughout Mesopotamia, Iraq, Syria, right down and through, um, all the way down and through along the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, a lot of these ancient civilizations, they carve these massive murals out of stone. And you can find great images of those online where they were uncovering them under layers and layers of dirt. And they show, in some cases, these handbags that some of these ancient winged gods, these Anunnaki gods are holding. And so in, there's always they're always depicted in a certain way, right? They either they have their hand up and then the, and, and the other side and their right hand or left hand, depending on which way you're looking at it, they have a handbag they're holding. Now, that same symbol is also found thousands of miles away in the Mayan and Aztec civilizations as well. This same symbol, these, this, it's, you can find in the Olmec and the Aztec, this, these handbags that are shown, right? And a lot of times in, in the case of in the, in the Americas, looking at the act, something that's physical, or is this something that's a symbolic thing? And so the more I've looked at this, and, and I've changed my stance on this over the years, but the more I've looked on at this, the more I think that, and I, and I talked about this in the stage of time, that I really believe that it's a symbolic way to show passing on the tools and knowledge necessary to create a civilization. And, and I th think that's why they're showing it, passing this, this handbag to, to all of these cultures. So what kind of building blocks do you need to create a civilization? Well, what kind of morals is, is that civilization going to have? What is that civilization going to be based on? What kind of knowledge is going to be imparted to create that kind of civilization? Are they going to be based on agriculture? Are they going to be based on warring empires? You know, what, what are the foundations that are going to be necessary for that civilization? And I think one of the number one things that really is involved in that is just knowledge, just teaching about this universe and this nature of reality that we exist in to create a conscious society that can be self-aware, that can then understand the purpose behind having a lot of those laws and rules and types of morals that are present in these cultures. And I think that's why you find it all around, all around the world, symbols all around the world. And that to me is the absolute proof behind the fact that they were influenced by the same influencers back then. These, I guess you could say those, those who were passing wisdom and information. And I don't think that it's just about, um, creating a civilization. It's creating a civilization in the image that they want it to be created in. Okay. And I think that's why some of the depictions are different depending on the types of regions. And that's where, that's where I see this whole thing connecting. I see some people in the chat saying they're, I'm having some connection issues. I really apologize about that. I, I hope that, you know, some of the dark overlords aren't deciding to mess around with my internet connection here a little bit, but I'm glad you guys can hear me again and we'll, we'll, we'll keep going as uh, along with this topic. So 
I see this hand, this um, handbag symbol as truly representing these different influences of those who passed through these regions and then created these civilizations. So in the Mayan case, we have Kukulkan, who was this imparter of knowledge in creating civilizations, right? And then right just to the west, we have we have Quetzalcoatl, who created this Aztec empire. And then further south, down in the Incas, we have Tiki Viracocha, who is this strange figure with a long beard who supposedly crossed the ocean and then in, created these civilizations. Well, that story and, and the fact that those gods are all influenced by the same types of mentalities and the same types of descriptions really makes it so that we should start paying attention. We should start paying attention and separating the fact that this was once real. These were once real influences that occurred. It doesn't make any sense to me when some will say, well, those, none of those gods throughout history are real. Well, and like I, I mentioned all the time, we have to separate them into two different categories, right? Some of the gods that are worshipped by indigenous cultures, yeah, they worship to get to have, you know, the rain god, fire god, to have different elements and different seasons. But there's also this completely different set of gods that seems to be very specific. They seem to have very specific conversations, and with with individuals and they seem to have very specific mentalities and i think that's what really separates them to know that they're that they're real now and i'm going to get to one, your your questions in the chat soon but the next question comes from again multiple people asked this and that's why i wanted to answer and talk about it. a lot of people really want to discuss bloodlines and they really want to discuss how bloodlines have an influence on why are there so many of these elite families throughout history that go all the way back to having kingships and having these dynasties, right? How does, how does that work? Is this just wanting your own family in control because it, it's, it's something that you're proud about and it's, it's, it's like your family heritage. Oh, my family's been in control of these dynasties for thousands of years. Or does it have something that goes much deeper than that? And the more that I've looked at this and the more that I've studied ancient civilizations and some of the wording that's given, the more it looks like specific bloodlines seem to be very important. Not in a way where, in a way where I'm trying to say that a certain person is better than another or some race is better than another race. That's, that's not where this is going at all. And that's not how I feel, but it seems like there's certain family bloodlines that have some genetic traits that go all the way back to the very beginning and those bloodlines, because of those traits, allowed certain enhanced abilities to individuals. Like, for instance, when you look into the Bible and you talk about how there were these Nephilim, these great giant kings who once existed, they were part of a specific bloodline that enabled them. And many of them had, like we know, like red hair and they were very tall. And all around the world, ancient cultures talked about how long ago, thousands of years ago, they, they were still around. And... The, some of those bodies were found in some of those serpent mounds in the Americas. And later on, they just sort of poof disappeared in places like the Smithsonian. And we never heard about them again. And going all the way down to places like Paracas, Peru, right? These Paracas skulls, these elongated skulls that is not from cranium and um, enlargement, but actually a genetic trait that's found with these larger heads that seems to go have to have this genetic bloodline influence from the past where there were these traits and certain bloodlines that are really um, largely been lost and just kept into certain individuals and groups. And I, and to me, to be clear, I don't, I really don't think that 
if we look at today and we look at what's been going on with some of these elite families, look at the Rothschilds, the Sinclairs, the Windsors, the Rock the Rockefellers, looking at some of the Rockefellers, looking at some of these families, I don't think that they're better than any of us. I really don't. I think that that's, that's in their head, but they think they are. And they think that because they have this ancestral bloodline that goes all the way back, that they're somehow better than the other individuals around them. And now one of the terms that has been used to differentiate between these dynasty bloodlines and the common folk of person is they call them the black-headed people. And you can see that in cuneiform tablets all over Mesopotamia. And I really do believe that had nothing to do with skin color. I think it had to do with this idea that knowledge back then was only kept at the very upper echelons of these priests and kings. And in many cases, those priests and kings were part of certain bloodlines. And that's the only reason why they were in that position that they were in the first place. And then the common folk was essentially called the black-headed people because they were empty of knowledge, black, just nothing, no light. And, and that's unfortunately how they were able to be so easily ruled and, and corralled into fighting these massive wars for empires without really understanding that there's so much more to their existence in, in this reality that, we're, that we exist in. So I want to read a quick, quick quote that I've read in the past, but I think it gets to this pretty well in terms of helping us understand bloodlines and the importance of why these dynasties existed. And it comes from the Behistun inscription in Iran talks about Darius the first and Darius says in this inscription, he states, that is why we are called Achaemenids. From antiquity, we have been noble. From antiquity has our dynasty been royal. Eight of my dynasty were kings before me. I am the ninth. Nine in succession, we have been kings. By the grace of Ahura Mazda, I am king. Ahura, Ahura Mazda has granted me the kingdom. So when we look at the dynastic pharaohs, and the pre-dynastic pharaohs, and we look at the dynasties that, that were existing in Persia and all across Mesopotamia and ancient Iraq areas, those kingdoms in almost every case were ruled by these bloodline dynastic families that go all the way back to the very beginning. And I think the best piece of evidence that helps prove this to explain it in a way where it connects all of this back to the very beginning would be when we look at this figure of Atrahasis, okay? He had many names. This was the biblical figure of Noah, who's connected supposedly to a bloodline that goes all the way back to his great-great-grandparents of Enoch, all the way back to the very beginning, which then Enoch goes all the way back to these bloodlines that connect to Cain and Abel, all the way back to Adamus, this Adamus figure that goes back to the very beginning of this perfect man this perfect man that was created, and he was called Adapa. And I think that though there are certain bloodlines that were created back then between individuals like Enki and Enlil. And I think, and some have called those bloodlines the bloodlines of the eagle and the serpent based on the influences they had on, on certain cultures around the world. And, and well, why would that be important? Well, the story of Atrahasis, this Mesopotamian cuneiform tablet that was found in the Asherbal Ponob, Ashurbanipal Library, which was an ancient library in Nineveh. Um, in, in 1849, Austin Henry, Austin Henry Layard found this massive library that was, it was on, buried under layers and layers of sediment. And they found, they uncovered more than 30,000 cuneiform tablets out of that. Today, it's the greatest library from the ancient world that was ever found. And most people have never even heard of it. And in that library, 
there was this set of tablets called the Atrahasis, and they were later translated by George Smith and then later Stephanie Daly in the 1870s. Now, and that, so that's the first point I want to make is that this is something that's been translated, translated by multiple individuals. And what it states in there is that Atrahasis is warned of a coming cataclysm. Okay. And he's, and he is the last king of Sharupak. You can, and you can learn about that through reading Sumerian King List and getting into things like the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Atrahasis and all those others, where his father, Ubaratutu, who was the last great king who reigned for a long period of time, ruled over this city that was called Sharupak. Now, Sharupak is a very, very important city because it was considered the last city before this great deluge swept through and destroyed everything. Now, uh, I want to make a little sidebar there and get back to that in a second. This brings up an important point I want to bring up, which is um, coming up at the end of May, there's a thing called Forbidden News Con that I'm going to be doing two shows with, one with Billy Carson and one a solo show. And in that solo show, I'm creating a timeline where every single one of these cuneiform tablets fits in based on a cycle of 20,000 years. Actually, I I apologize, 200,000 years. And so each segment of that breaks up, well, where did Atlantis exist in this? Where did the Epic of Gilgamesh fit into the story? Where did the Atrahasis fit into the story? And I I bring that up because I encourage people to check that out because basically what it's going to do is place all of these in history so we can understand. Now, getting back to what I was saying, Sharupak is listed in multiple places as being the last city as part of the old ancient world in Mesopotamia before it was destroyed and and ruined by these cataclysms that occurred. So Ubar Tutu was the last reigning king of of, of Sharupak. And you can read that in the Sumerian king list. But he had a son, and his son was named Atrahasis or Zayasudra or Untapishti, depending on the different empire in the region that wrote these tablets. For instance, the Babylonian versions use a different name. The Chaldeans use a different name. So there's the Sumerians use a different name. So basically, you can trace each one of those names to basically the same individuals. And so in the story of Atrahasis, this Noah figure is warned about a coming cataclysm. Well, why was he warned? Nobody else was warned. And in fact, the Anuna, as they were called, these great gods who I think are the same ones that were imparting those handbags and that knowledge all around the world that I talked about before, They talked about how they made a strict pact to not tell anybody about this coming cataclysm to basically reset everything. They felt like things were out of control and they wanted to reset this world to basically wipe us out because we were an abomination. And they wanted to have a clean slate to start over with. And so they allowed this great disaster to occur. And I can get into what caused that disaster later on if people end up wanting to know. But they... They basically made a pact to not tell anyone here in this physical mortal world on earth that this cataclysm was going to come. But Atrahasis was literally the only one that was warned in terms of a great king. There are stories like the Hopi and other ancient stories around the world that perhaps there was other individuals that warned others Ill- illegally too and then led them into caves. And I, th- I totally buy that too. And I think it makes sense considering that we weren't wiped out. But the most famous story is this story of Atrahasis because he was warned by Enki through a series of visions. He wasn't—he didn't directly break his, his oath. He used visions to explain to him that he had to create a great 
craft to survive an absolute deluge of mud and water and ice and all kinds of things that came through because of melting ice caps and shifting poles and all the things that happened. But so why was he, why was he saved? Why was this, this, this king saved? Well, he was a king because he was a dynasty king from Ubar Tutu. He was his son and he was the last ruler of Sharupak before it was obliterated, destroyed. But he ruled for such a short time that he wasn't listed in the Sumerian king list. That's why Ubar Tutu is shown, shown as being the last king of the Sumerian king list and not his son because he, he ruled for, for a short period of time. Anyway, he was essentially warned to survive this cataclysm with his family, okay? His, he Because he had children through his bloodline. And so his family was warned and he survived this cataclysm. He ends up, you know, on top of a great mountain after it's all over with. And Enlil descends and is furious that this man has survived. And he was, he was about to kill him until he finds out he can't because Atrahasis is a direct bloodline connection son of Enki. Okay. And it goes all the way back to Enoch to the very beginning when these bloodlines came disseminated down with these gifts these gifts of this per perfect man. That's what essentially it came down to. So Atrahasis is only saved because he's part of this ancient bloodline that exists. Now, those bloodlines of the eagle and the serpent became the competing force behind one of the reasons why so many empires were battling. They wanted to purify and to have one empire to rule everything. And that's why these gods were all battling because they were like, they wanted to purify and to have one empire to rule everything. And that's why these gods were all battling because they wanted that. Why so, so many of these dynasty kings were considered so powerful and they created this pyramid structure of knowledge to keep the, the people, the black headed on the, the ignorant, the unknowing people just separated from this knowledge. And of course, later on, we know that once a lot of this knowledge became more and more rampant through societies, they started just killing them and burning up the stakes. And then they basically shut off this whole connection that people once had to knowledge. And we're just getting back to that now with the acquisition of things like free speech and the internet, which is disappearing every day. But basically, I, and I want to just connect one other thing is, well, why did we have so then how does the enlarged head thing come in? How do, why are there skulls from Egypt to Paracas, uh, Peru that have these that have these large heads that have been found? I think I really do think that it gets back to the same thing. There was genetics, these bloodlines and genetics that have to do with having being much taller back then, much smarter, much taller, and having larger heads. It would make smart it makes sense that if you had a larger cranium, had a larger brain, that you could be more intelligent. And I think that's really what it came down to. But then, and so those, those kings with those large heads were ruling over these vast empires of people, teaching them knowledge and creating these um, civilizations. And so what happened? Well, the people tried to mimic them. And that's why you see cranium enlargement all around the world from Afri Africa all the way to South America and everything in between, trying to mimic these rulers. And when we had the, the conquering of the Inca, um, when they, when they were destroyed, one of the things you find out was that Atahualpa, the last Incan ruler, basically, that was killed, you find out that he was actually considered the last of, a, of an ancient bloodline. 
And there was almost, there was no other besides him. And that was one of the reasons why when he was murdered by Pizarro, who, who tricked him into, into saying, well, if you give me um, an entire building full of gold, I will save your leader, Atahualpa, and you can be free and I, we, we will leave. And then, of course, they got this giant building full of gold and then they just executed Atahualpa. And then years later, the, as piece by piece, the entire Incan empire eventually fell. That's how that works because these cultures know that these are their sacred leaders that are part of ancient bloodlines that are what had been connected to the gods long ago. And once they died, died, it was like they had no one to lead them and there was no really not, no kind of motivation behind keeping those empires alive. They were unguided. And I think I have one more question before I get to the chat here. And I apologize. You, people that know me, they know how long-winded I am. Um, and the last question comes from talking about the, the secret book of John in the Nag Hammadi, okay? And, and some people wanted to ask about, they were uh, confused about this Yaldaba figure. And I, I and I've talked about this back when I did a show with David Easter on a previous Mastermind Discussions. Now, and I, and I think that what's really interesting about this Yaldabaoth figure, though, is to me, it's direct evidence that proves, once again, that this is not the creator of all of the universe. This isn't this this beneficial, loving God, that this is something totally different, this character Yaldabaoth, okay? And it represents this idea that certain spiritual entities became so powerful that they actually controlled certain aspects of reality. And I know that's so hard for us to wrap our minds around, but when you read the secret book of John, which people ask me, they're like, well, you know, what's so important about that? I've never even heard of it. Well, that's what's important about it is this was a this was a Gnostic teaching that was deliberately kept out of the Bible later on. That It was called the Nag Hammadi scriptures. It was, an, it was a set of ancient Gnostic stories and everything from talking about the archons in that these entities that seem to rule over this non-physical reality we exist in to the secret book of John, where he talks about how there's a struggle in our reality between mortal man and the non-physical higher dimensions. And that there are real sentient beings that exist there that are powerful and rule over our reality and play with us in many different ways. And I mean, play as in like, it's a stage here. Short quote from this this um the, the the secret book of john so people can can understand that and i've read this before but i really think that and so yaldabaoth states in the secret book of john which was found in 1945 by the nile river in a caves hidden from from imposing armies trying to find it and, and destroy it they uncovered this in 1945 and yaldabaoth states i am a jealous god and there is no other god besides me a jealous god how could, why would the creator of all represent himself like, like that? Why would he, there'd be, there'd be no reason to be jealous over something like us, unless you were one of these God beings who was jealous over the fact that we have the potential to be greater than even them. That's what the jealousy is about. It's about how, how perfect we were designed and the fact that that jealousy gets into that we that we were never supposed to be this intelligent and perfect in the first place. And I think that's where the eagle and the struggle ser serpent, the eagle and the serpent struggle comes in all around the world, all over the place, because that's this whole battle of duality between these different sides of, of light versus darkness of individuals who want us to either succeed and reach higher seas of consciousness or others who want to control us through our demiurges, in our lower states of consciousness. So 
Continuing, it states, and in that moment, the rest of the powers became jealous because he, Adapa, Adamo, had come into being through all of them. And they had given their power to man, and his intelligence was greater than all of those who had made him, and even greater than, than that of Yaldabaoth. And when he recognized that he was luminous and that he could think better than they, they took him and threw him into the lowest region of all matter. In my opinion, that might be one of the greatest lines in all of these Gnostic writings. Jealous of him, and so they threw him in the lowest state of all matter, the third dimension. And that's where we are. That's what happened to us. We were perfect, and we existed in higher states of consciousness, the fourth, the fifth dimension. We were truly light beings of higher dimensions, and we were cast down. And then the brilliant thing that so many people know that I talk about on a lot of my shows is that well, then we were coerced into in, living in a reality full of chaos and war and deception and materialism to blind us of what we truly are, to just keep us trapped in, the, in what I think is hell, is truly being stuck in the third dimension for, for lifetime after lifetime and never realizing the divinity of what you truly are. Because that soul that's trapped, that's within you, that, that antenna you have that connects you to these higher conscious thinkings and you become this higher conscious being – that that being be, is screaming to be heard. It is our higher conscious self. And when that being doesn't get heard, it's like it exists in a state of hell because it doesn't belong there. And so that's the last question, I think. Let me just double check. That's the last question that I have from online. And so now let's, let's try to get to some of the questions that you guys have on here. Now, uh, bear with me for a second because I'm going to try to Scroll up and check some of these out because I know a lot of people have asked some really great questions. So let's see what we have, some good stuff here we can, we can talk about. So someone, um, here's a great question. Um, Matt, do you know more about Planet X and talking about some of these comets that are coming towards us? Okay, great question. Thank you for asking that. I think it's important for us to incorporate what is going on in our solar system to what is going on in our energetic and physical changes that are occurring to our world. When we, we get told that everything that is happening in our world is simply based on um, human impacts, you know, for instance, nothing like this, nothing like our warming or anything that's going on in our world has ever happened before and that we're entirely to blame and there's no outside force that has anything to do with conscious and, and climatic changes in our world. That's just not true. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm in any way supportive of us polluting and continuing this destructive, horrible me mentality where we just pollute our world and we just endlessly take fossil fuels and inj inject all of these CO2 and all these terrible things into the atmosphere that's horrible we're killing gaia absolutely that that's not good for our world however it's deceptive to try to blame everything on simply us so that we don't understand all these other forces that are going on around us now i'm i use the term i think that the term planet x and the term planet nine are used in conjunction they're the exact same thing okay and it, and it goes into a lot more than just this supposed planet that exists out there. I think the bigger part of it is the fact that that body that exists, and I'll get into some of the evidence about that, that how that exists, but it's, I think it has more to do with this lost binary sun that we have. 
Okay. That I think is where a lot of these problems come in. As we know, everything follows cycles. If you look at the pioneer data, and I have a lot of videos and, and information in my latest book, The Stage of Time, that really proves that, yes, there is a planet that exists out there. Caltech just did a study of the Kuiper Belt, which is this outer asteroid belt that surrounds our inner solar system. And they found that, and this gets into the comets question as well, they found that the comets that are that are found around the Kuiper Belt exhibit really strange paths, these really, really elongated paths that seem to point to the fact that they're being disrupted by an outside object, okay? Now, when NASA, and, and, and to be clear, I'm not a flat Earth person. If anyone is going to be asking about flat Earth, I'd be happy to talk about it. But I am, for the most part, I am supportive of of us being in a vast cosmos with billions and billions of star systems and galaxies and, and, and worlds that are out there. But the problem is people get confused. The fact that there is a non-physical electromagnetic world that exists that is, is behind everything that we can't see. And so that's, I think where this confusion comes in, it's not fake. It's just that there are more layers that, that are to it. It's, there is a physical body that exists when you look up at the star you know, when you look up at the Sirius, that that's there, but there's also an energetic component to it as well. Now, getting so getting back to that, those bodies that are, that can be out there can can inhibit can create effects on other bodies around them. And so, when you get cycles of these things that occur, you can get problems. Now, one of those problems was with Neptune and Uranus. They found there was a tilt to their planets. And so they, they sent the pioneer probes out in the 1980s to go find out what was causing that. And they discovered that there was this outer planetary body far beyond the Kuiper belt that was more, more than four times bigger than our world. And not only that, they ended up discovering all kinds of other small planets out there too, but they're so dark that you can't see them. But even more importantly than planet nine and planet X was that they found this dead binary star. I, it, to me, that's, probably the biggest headline that should come across the screens is that you know, we've been completely misled that we actually exist in a binary star system. So how, how does that binary star affect our star? How does a sun get affected by another, another dead star that's way out far beyond it with a path that's something like every 20,000 years? You know, how does that get affected? How does that affect cycles of human consciousness here? How does that affect our climate? How does that affect poles? When you look at the fact that our, our sun goes through these solar maximums and solar minimums, how much are those solar maximums and minimums affected by those outer bodies? We don't know. We don't know because we, ha we haven't been given any data on it. For the most, I'm one of the few people that even talks about this binary star. And, but yet, you can go in and look at the 1987 Science in Encyclopedia and see the depictions of the Pioneer Probe, seeing, finding direct data of exactly where this binary sun was, this star that, that's out there. And they call it a dead star, meaning it's much older than ours. I think that that's fascinating to get to. Now, how could that affect us? Well, I think we're seeing the effects right now with all the, the volcanism that's occurring on our world, the, 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 the climate shifts. We've had snow here the last three days in a row. It's April 18th. Normally we have the leaves come out here in a week and yet it's, we still have midwinter conditions. That doesn't mean that that's directly 
an impact of that, but dramatic climate changes, strange things that are going on is a lot of times when you see that correlation over a long period of time, it's something to pay attention to. And that's, I think what we really have been seeing over the last 20, 30 years is this increasing instability with our climate and things like the poles shifting around in the North and South pole. And the fact that they've had to go up and recalibrate all of our GPS devices because of that, that's evidence that we're in that shift right now. And I talk about that a lot, but that's, that's how I would, I would answer that is, yeah, we're entering that time right now where those comets are coming back. Okay. They're impacting the Kuiper belt that, that planet and that binary stun, they're impacting our, our sun in some way. We don't fully know how that is, but we're getting impacted. And the real question is going to be is where does, where does we, where do we go from now? What are the next 50 years going to look like for human civilization? And I think that's why we should really truly be studying it. Okay, let's see what we got on the next question. These are great, by the way, guys. I really, I really love having these discussions with everyone. And I know so many people are frustrated with like, oh, I really wanted to know this question or I get interrupted on another show and they, I never get to answer it. So it's nice to be able to have a little bit of a more intimate discussion with everyone and to be able to answer the things that you're asking. Okay, let's see. What's the next one we got? Some really great questions here. Let's see. Hmm. Uh, there's a question here from Connor. Thank you. He's asking about what I th- what I think about headdresses. I think that's a great question because it does it does seem like um, a lot of groups that are higher up had headdresses. One of the interesting things when I was studying is that. The first thing that I had thought was that headdresses with feathers, especially with some of the um, indigo, Aztec and the Mayan and Aztec, they had these plumed headdresses. Now, at first, it seems like they're trying to embody just a bird, right? Just like an eagle or bird. But the more you look at it, the more a lot of those feathers were different colors. They were different types of feathers. It wasn't just one type of feather. And I think when you look at what the translation of the of Americas is, not about this Italian explorer, but if you look at the, the direct translation of what the word America comes from, from South America right up through the, the Central America and Mexico, you find out that the name, the name America comes from the word Amaruca. And Amaruca meant plumed serpent. The plumed serpents. Okay. That was, that was essentially the land of the plumed serpent was what it meant. And it represented these gods that influence each one of those, those, those regions. And I think that's the rulers. I think it's the same thing. I think that they were mimicking and showing honoring some of these great plumed serpent gods. Cause that's what those feathers are. It's a plume. It's a plumed serpent metamorphosis, wings, metamorphosizing into your higher state. That's really what I think it comes down to. So I hope that helps with that question. I have a question here. Um, Thanks. Are the Anunnaki the fallen angels? If so, is there a big battle between them and God coming? All right. So great question. I do think that the Anunnaki are what we have been shown all throughout um, religions and throughout history as these fallen angels. I think that they are them. I think that they were so powerful and and, and being able to um, manipulate reality, being able to take on physical form when they wanted to or not, 
being able to live almost eternally. Like we can't understand like how could the Sumerian king list contain kings that ruled for hundreds, if not thousands of years? How is that possible? Well, I think it comes down to some of these bloodlines, like I had talked about earlier, how they had completely different genetics than we do. I think that's why Adapa was given the the idea that he could be a mortal being and he was he turned it down because of various things. I think that comes down to the fact that if you are an eternal being, there are some drawbacks to that. Believe it or not, you you have to essentially live forever and you can't learn those valuable lessons that are necessary to say, oops, and then you maybe die and then you incarnate again. I do think that our lives are based on generations and generations of past lives where we've had to learn from certain mistakes and change over time that it's instilled within us. It's in our DNA. And, And I think that's necessary for us to grow on a certain spiritual level. Whereas if you're an eternal being, you don't necessarily have those abilities to learn those lessons. And in most cases, you're not going to be a physical being either. So getting down to the the fallen angels, I think the Anunnaki became fallen because of what they did with mankind. They ended up having influences um, even because of what they did with mankind. They ended up having influences even sexual influences with the daughters of men, women. We, you know, it's been shown that we're, you know, we're a a beautiful species. We are created in perfection. You know, this idea that somehow this almost like a, a, a female is like an angel, like some kind of a goddess. And she's so perfect that she basically uh, these beings are tempted by her, right? But they're a higher being. They're supposed to stay outside of the things that are going on in our reality. And they tampered with our reality. They became, they came down and influenced us, influenced us in all these different ways, you know, genetically causing different bloodlines, causing us to be, I think, I really truly believe that we are this product of something that was supposed to be where we are millions of years from now. And I think that there are sentient beings that exist out there that are monitoring our reality and where we go. And I think we were jump-started. We were pushed much, much further ahead of where we should have been. I think that's where that jealousy from Yaldabaoth Enlil comes from, is that we became these superior gods within a mortal body. And, And I think that's why they became fallen angels, because they became jealous. They influenced. They were promiscuous with, with women. You had these bloodlines that were then created with large tall kings that ruled for thousands of years the balance was thrown off and so some of these beings the term fallen may have meant they were cast out of some of these higher dimensional realms they were cast out and forced to exist in almost in conjunction with our reality okay and they weren't they would never be able to achieve some of these higher states where they maybe in many ways become very very important in terms of maybe being like these watch these guardians of of our the realm of our of our multiverse if you look at um i did a if you look at um alistair crowley in the in the enochian knowledge of the magic and some of the strange things that happened way back in the day you find out that there were certain individuals that delved into dark arts and actual magic like real enochian i encourage people to check out go look up what enochian magic is 
Okay. It's nothing to do with sleight of hand magic. When I, I mentioned that because in that they talk about how they connected to certain beings that are non-physical outside of our realm, all of them that practice it. And I, and I have a video I did early in my channel. You can check out if you're interested way back at, in the beginning, they talk about how are there are these guardians, these watchtower guardians of our realm, and that there are different dimensions with some dimensions having complete chaos in them. And then other dimensions are balanced. And some of these Anunnaki individuals may have been part of that system originally of being like these guardians of certain aspects of reality, but because of their jealous ways and things that they did in our, in our free will of our, of our physical world, they were cast out. They were no longer able to hold those seats of being that taking on that role. And I think that's one of the reasons why you saw so much turmoil break out here because, and I think that's one of the reasons why our spiritual realm has this battle of duality so extreme in it from either side, because some of these beings are basically forced to exist in like a hell state because of us. And in, in many ways it's their own fault. But I think that's why this battle of the serpent and the eagle exists. It essentially is duality. It's whether or not we're going to exist in a state of darkness ignorance, not understanding our role in this physical realm in being mortal gods of consciousness, or we're going to just think that we're an animal like every other animal here. And that we, through survival of the fittest, we can just create empires, destroy everything, lose all balance and just have this complete opposite end of what I think the serpent teaching is truly, yeah, truly made up of. And I think that's why cultures all around the world have those symbols within them. Um, it, it's more than just duality. It is the struggle of our reality here. Yeah, there's another question coming in. Um, what role does Enlil and, Enlil and Marduk have with our connection here? That, I really do think that gets into exactly what I was just talking about. Marduk was this firstborn son, this royal bloodline son of the gods of Enki. And he was of the serpent bloodline of Enki. And he was a god like them. He was, he was considered a demigod because he was one of the lower generational gods. And one of the things I talk about in the stage of time is I think some of these lower generational gods, Mesopotamian um, murals and basically cuneiform tablets in ways, um, and some of these cylinder seals that depict Enki as this water god, like it's the complete opposite. Then that's what duality is. And he's essentially holding the balance here and in control of that here. But because of free will, he, the, those forces are sort of on their own to decide how they go. He is ultimately inside a balance in, in charge of balance, but the, that eagle and the serpent struggle between some of these jealous gods and, and over free will. How, how the fact that if you can influence a sentient conscious mortal being to do something that you wanted to do without forcing it to do it, then it's, it's like they made the decision, not you. And I think that's how this, this whole thing has gone with these battling of, well, Marty was in charge of the Babylonian Empire and created that. And I think that's how this this whole thing has gone with these battling of, well, Marty was in charge of the Babylonian Empire and created that in a certain way to then compete to the north with Nineveh and Ashur, which was Enlil. And so Enlil and Marduk and, and Enlil seem to be battling and fighting for long periods of time until they maybe potentially had some kind of a collaboration. And I think that's why Christianity became so corrupt later on. Let's see. These are really great questions, guys. Okay, so I got a question about 5G. I know that some people are probably super curious about what's going on right now. And I, as I said, these topics can be all over the place. So we're going to jump from ancient history to current events. 
wireless signals may be the most disruptive signals to higher consciousness that we have. Because when I talk about me and many, many others, I want to make that clear, is that consciousness in terms of our physical body, we seem to really truly be like an antenna here. And I think that's why the ancient Egyptians showed so much importance in many, many others as well on the importance of the third eye. Isn't it amazing? Cultures all around the world have, you know, a red dot or many, many other depictions of the idea that if this third eye that exists within us isn't activated, then essentially it's like our antenna won't work. What is this antenna? Well, we seem to be like a modem for this higher conscious state that we're connected to. I call it the higher self. And when that connection is severed, this when the pineal gland is calcified through a multiple different means, I think it's a combination of certain kinds of food, things like fluoride and water, but also things like signals that can that can bombard us and truly affect that signal. And as people know, we've been we've been moving towards 4G and now we're at this 5G aspect where these signals are even more powerful than ever before. Was COVID-19 just a way to get people all quarantined so that they could um, they can have 5G installed all around the world? Maybe, perhaps. I do, I would be supportive of that idea because maybe it would affect it would have affect what it would have affected people more if everybody was just doing their day-to-day life. We, we don't really know, but one thing I can tell you for sure is, and some of some others have brought this up too, my dream state over the last several weeks has been unlike anything I've ever experienced. And others have said the same thing. Is Are we getting affected by that? Those who are conscious and awake, is it having some kind of effect on that as well? And what about people who aren't awake? What about people whose, cal- uh, whose pineal gland is calcified? Is this bombarded them to to even a higher level where it's going to prevent this higher consciousness? You know, is that why as we enter this age of Aquarius with the universal consciousness where we have higher bound to keep us in this lower state? I th- I would absolutely support a whole host of different reasons why some of these things may be happening. Because I think there's a necessity to keep the system going. And I really do think that if society learned the truth about who we really are and what our place is in the vast multiverse and what we are as conscious gods. Most people would not want to do the li- fulfill the lives they're doing. These, in many cases, these empty lives that are just full of distraction where they may die and they get forgotten forever and they, they realize they were tricked at the very end. And I think that if pe- a lot of people realized the truth about a lot of the ancient cultures and what they're trying to tell us about who we really are, I think that our entire society would be different. And I think that aspects of, of the way that it's controlled now wouldn't be able to be around unless people were deliberately dumbed down and kept in a lower vibrational state. And I think that's one of the, one of the things that's, that's happening here. Let's see. These are great. Yeah, cedars of civilization. That's exactly what I was thinking for that first question. These are excellent points here, guys. I love the commentary back and forth. Let's see what we got here. All right. 
All right. Um, some of these aren't really questions; they're just sort of comments. So I'm, I'm trying to find some some good questions here that other people would want to know about. Um, let's see. Someone asked, "Is Enoch and Thoth are they different individuals?" I do. I do think that they're different, but they're all part of these ancient teachers and these ancient indi bloodline individuals that had a connection to higher self. And I think a lot of them were even in little under the radar with some is that, you know, we, I think that we're like these puppets, we're like these conduits. And some of us can be influenced in various ways where we almost can be like an incarnation of something that's not what it seems on the surface, you know, something that's much more intelligent, something that's, um, older and has more wisdom. And I think that's why in certain places you see this idea that some of them hide in the shadows and pretend that they're just like mankind, but they're really not. So they're different, but they, they both had similar purposes of one was perhaps more of just an importance of an, of a bloodline. And the other, in the case of Thoth, it was more of an ancient teacher that was repeatedly coming back and going into stasis and, and existing during certain time periods to enlighten individuals. And I do really do believe that Thoth was a child of Atlantis, an individual who, had come from another civilization that was destroyed. And I, and I really do think that's why pre-dynastic Egypt, you would call it, um, pre-Diluvian Egypt, you, whatever term you want to use, I think that that's why that civilization became so grand and created these incredible pyramids with underground temples and connections to the underworld and great libraries. And I think that's what the purpose of that was. It's this protection of knowledge to continue it on into the future. Okay, let's see. Let's see what else we got. These are awesome. Oh, someone, um, I got a great question here. Is this, is this great awakening? Did the sons of these gods or these gods ever leave? Um, why is this knowledge hidden now? We are eternal beings. Why are we in this Truman show that exists here? You know, one of my favorite passages in, I, let me see if I have it here. One of my favorite passages um, comes from the Epic of Gilgamesh. And it, the Epic of Gilgamesh has this line. I'm just going to see if I have it off here to read. Um, I, don't have it, I don't have it right in front of me. But basically, if you, I, there's these pieces in the Epic of Gilgamesh that are truly incredible. And one of them is when Gilgamesh finally meets up with Untapishti, which we know is Atrahasis, the last king of Shrupak, who was given immortality on top of that mountain I told you about that Enlil and Enki descended. He was pulled out of our reality and given some kind of an eternal gift, but he had to live in another realm. So it's so when Gilgamesh was seeking him for immortality, it's because he had already achieved immortality. And so Il Gilgamesh was embarking on this journey to go to other realms to find him, and he did find him. And he sits down, he talked to immortality. And so Il Gilgamesh was embarking on this journey to go to other realms to find him. And he did find him. And he sits down, he talks to Untapishti and he, Adrahasis, and he's asking him about immortality and what is the secret? How can I become immortal? And, and so Untapishti sits down with him and he tells him a great story. He tells him how long ago, and he emphasizes that term, very long ago, in the city of Shurupak, that the city of Shurupak was very old. And again, they keep using that terms old, like 
far before this this story of Gilgamesh. And I think that's where that timeline that I'm, that I'm going to be creating that I will have in a show is going to come in handy because the story of Gilgamesh is after the flood. He, In fact, he's after Atana too. The legend of Atana, because it talks about how he was the first king after the flood. And then Gilgamesh even mentions that on this journey to see into put into Pishti, that he has a vision or sees this, this spirit of Atana, which means Atana has already died, which means it's after those events. So we don't know exactly when it was, but we know it was after the deluge and the flood, meaning that there were some of these great bloodlines that were still ruling over these regions. And I think that's where you get the dynastic pharaohs. That's where you get that connection, that lost connection. They still had that connection to those those families. Now, he says in that, that Shurupak was an ancient, ancient city and that the gods walked among them in the city. And that gives us a time li- timeline. It tells us when those gods were here in physical form and the, in these temples where they would go up in these enormous temples and they would get down and they would discuss and meditate. I think that some of these gods and beings that exist in other dimensions, they would manifest down and have conversations with them. I really do think that that's what happened. But I think that that in the, in, the, in many ways was the extent of what they did here. I don't think they just walked around everywhere, you know, with the people and the, hey, nice to meet you. No, I don't think it was like that at all. It was more of, you know, if you're a chosen king, you have the right to speak to me, but no one else does. So, and what he says in that at the end, though, that is very, very important, is he says that there were these great disasters that occurred and the gods departed from our realm. They left. They, they left. The Shurupak was the last time that they were here in physical form and then they left. And, they, and as far as we know, they still, obviously, they, those influences are here and there's still influences from beyond our physical realm here, but they're no longer here. That's what the tablet states, and I would tend to agree with them there. And I think that's one of the reasons why chaos has ruled here so badly is that we have become these, um, it's like the parents are gone and we're having this huge party here and everything's gone out of control. And and there's bad individuals here that have gotten, some individuals that have gotten very smart and realized they could control society through becoming incredibly wealthy and just taking over all the systems of our world. I think that's what is going on today. Let's see what else we got some great questions here. All right. Some people are asking about um, some of these writings and why it's so difficult to find information on them. Things like the Emerald Tablets, some of these Mesopotamian writings. How come no one's ever heard of them? I really do think that there's one of the battles that's going on here, and it's probably related, if you could think about it, with this secret societies and the eagle and the serpent, is that there are secret societies here that are still connected to all the the old ways of the past. But because we live in this modern age where it's not really conducive to still um, being the same, you know, there are powerful very dark individuals that are in charge of our reality right now. There are secret societies that became corrupted, things like the Freemasons who became corrupted. And we've lost so many aspects of what really made us more moral. And there's there's a lot of evil that still rules our world. And I think that that is what the struggle is and why some of these secret societies like the Brotherhood of the, of the White Temple and a lot of these other ones, why they are have to remain so under underground in terms of knowledge because there is a real 
real worry here that we will lose this knowledge and it will be gone forever and we will be on the path of darkness and we'll never get out. And I think there's, so there's a, there's a struggle about, yeah, there's some moral lessons that there that are, but you and I, those individuals who are like seeking those pieces to understand timelines and where everything fits in, they're just buried within these incredibly long documents. And that's why I, I try to help people out by picking out those pieces. And that's what I think is so important about my previous book, The Stage of Time, because those important tablets with those pieces broken out is right in there for your reference. You know, when we want to read a tablet, we can just pick up, pick this up and, and go to the back and look up, you know, what page was that tablet on? I want to read it again to try to understand it. And I think that's what we need to be doing here. And so the, why are those little pieces that exist here around? Well, they're very symbolic and they're e they're very easy to just call myths because they, they're difficult to make sense of it because of how symbolic they are. But in the end, we must be objective with everything. And when we see these specific dialogues with these individuals, how can that not be real? How can a specific dialogue that's given with individuals using very specific words and, and, and even referencing things we find in other tablets, like how do they know that if it's not real? Like if this was all created, and they just created these tablets because it's fun to try to get these these lessons, these moral lessons that we can understand. They created them. How could we have these dialogues that can be connected by tablets that are found thousands of miles away all over the place that have this very specific story that can be correlated to this data that really gives us this information about, wow, so this like like when in the Epic of Gilgamesh, so this city of Shurupak was real and he was the last king there. And he says the gods were there in physical form and they departed when the deluges occurred. And he, all these things are very specifically um, stated in there. And I think that once we wrap our heads around that, we can begin, begin to understand that some stuff is symbolic and some stuff is is literal. And I think that that's what we need to separate and try to wrap our heads around. Okay. Uh, alchemy and history. Thank you. It's a great question. What role did alchemy play in ancient history? I think that alchemy, alchemy really gets back into this whole idea of Enochian magic and the idea that we exist in a reality that can be manifested and altered. If we can truly understand that we have powers that go just beyond, you know, the, the physical world here. And there are elements that can be combined together to create all kinds of incredible things. And we ourselves are a product of that. You know, we are the perfect mix of all these different genetics to get the perfect sentient being. And I think, so alchemy, it's, it's everything. It's like, how do you, how do you, um, manifest a certain reality with certain elements there in place to get a certain desired outcome. And, and you can manipulate that based on that. And I think that's why we see a lot of ancient technology, like in the pyramids and a lot of other places that just simply disappeared. I think it was based on a lot of both alchemical and um, ways to utilize technology like sound technology and vibrational frequency and things like that. That's where this lost um, technological side, I think has disappeared now. And there's just these little fragments of it. And most people don't even think it's real anymore. Okay, guys, we have 15 more minutes. Let's go ahead and I'm going to answer um, some more of these questions. So get them in and I'll, I'm trying to answer as many as I can here. I'm sort of scrolling through, picking out the ones that make sense. Someone asked about um, monoatomic gold in here. 
and I, I love to talk about that. Gold seems to be one of the most important elements in the entire periodic table. Now, and that gets directly into alchemy, okay? Because we need to understand that these components go far beyond just being rare and being pretty, but they actually have alchemical principles that can that can alter things on a physical level. Level, it seems to me, looking at especially ancient Egypt up through Mesopotamia, you see countless stories about how. They were, they were all looking for the secret of basically immortality, right? This forbidden philosopher's stone. I think that's what it was. Because when you look at dynastic and pre-dynastic pharaohs, when they uncovered them in their sarcophagus, they had buried next to them, they found monoatomic gold powder. This white powder where it was combined to create this chemical reaction within us. And why would they do that? I think they were seeking immortality. And I think because gold is eternal, it has certain element properties that allow intense interest to live so long. And I think it also has these, uh, these abilities to improve on our, um, our ability to um, understand higher conscious thought and have sort of a faster thought process in our brain through its electric, the, the, the electrical com components it has between it. So I hope that, people understand that there's a lot of things that have been told to us that are a little different than we, than, than the actual science really backs up. Let's see what we have here. Yeah. And then some people are asking about some of these ancient writings and why it's so difficult to find information. This is a battle over information right now. Just please keep that in mind. Even if something doesn't have a lot of historical background to prove that it was real, like Atlantis, how do we know Atlantis was real, right? Well, Plato gives us very specific instructions that he learned from Solon. It, the Egyptian knowledge that this, this, there was a physical ancient civilization that was connected, that had knowledge that was destroyed. And he gives us a date of, he gives us a date basically of 11,600 years or somewhere in that time period. If, if you add up the date he gives so-and-so thousands of years before he was alive, you add up those, those years, you find out that, yeah, during that time period, we had devastating cataclysms that were destroying huge parts of our planet, causing potentially civilization to be underwater. Well, the point I'm trying to make about that is, what if Plato had never learned that knowledge? What if he had never traveled and, and found that Egyptian knowledge? We would have nothing. That's literally one of the only pieces of evidence that ever survived that proves that Atlantis is real. Well, Plato is one of the greatest philosophers in history, and yet we choose to ignore him when he has detailed inscriptions in the Timaeus and Critias that talk all about it, the amount of rings that it had, how large it was, where, you know, relatively where it was located and when it was destroyed. And yet, where do we choose to ignore it? Well, that's the point I'm trying to make is what if he never found that knowledge? We've never even known that it was around. And I think that's the same when it comes to a lot of these the ancient tablets and, and information. Go objectively read it for yourself and decide if it's real based on what is it telling you? How does it make you feel? Does it make you feel higher states of consciousness? Well, then it has to be real, right? How can something enable you to reach higher stages of consciousness if it's, a, if it's just a deception? There'd be no purpose in that. I think so. I want people to wrap their, their heads around that. Stop trying to find answers on the internet just in like, oh, this is right because I'm someone's told me it's right, or this this is right because some 
um, someone who's out digging there found it and then they give that information. We have to understand there's so much deception and misinformation throughout history that it's very difficult to actually get this these genuine facts and focus so heavily on individuals like George Smith and Stephanie Daly and the translations you can get from a lot of other individuals as well. Okay, let's see what else we have here. I mean, look at the Nag Hammadi scriptures, right? Is there any other information that talks about those? No, we just, we're lucky enough that someone found them in a cave and we have them today. I think that's what we need to wrap our heads around too. Okay, let's see what else we got. See if we can get a couple more questions here. Okay, Elephanta Caves and some of these others, and there's several of them around that. Um, Sanjay Gandhi National Park has some incredible one. Kernshaw Cave there, down in, to the south of that, you have Elephanta Caves. Go look in those incredible structures that have been created into solid basalt. You, supposedly, when those were built, we had built with those. Therefore, they had to have been using technology and tools that are beyond our comprehension and are much older. But what they state, what they show in that is there's this figure that we that's shown called Buddha. And this in this figure of Buddha is all over these temples. This figure of Buddha, was Buddha real? Or was it just this spiritual connection they had? To me, just like all these other influences around the world, it had to have been a real being at one point. Or it wouldn't have been all these physical representations of it that are the same everywhere. Like that being at one time had imparted that knowledge like a handbag, created those civilizations, and then they were honored. I think that's the same story with Kukulkan, Quetzalcoatl, Tiki Virkosha, Hura Mazda, Enki, all the way over into the, um, in the, in the, in throughout Asia and right down into India with, with Buddha and a lot of these other beings. They're, the, they're simply physical incarnations of wisdom bringers or individuals here that we're trying to create civilizations. Okay, let's see. Wish it was easier to pick these out. I just got to kind of scroll through. Okay. All right, let's go ahead and have our last question here. Oh, are we still connected? Oh, okay. I had a, I had a little freeze there for a second, guys. I'm sorry. It looks like it's the chat just filled up with a bunch of stuff, so I, I'm, I'm back to reading this. Um, okay, so someone has brought up, well, What's going on with these elites today with Bill Gates and all the, the virus stuff and the control of information and, and some of these elite families that seem to control our world? I really do believe that, that these – and you go look at the Georgia Guidestones. I mean I think it says it all right there. There are very powerful families that have emerged over the last couple thousand years who have taken control over our entire world. They, they did it through two different ways, through religion and through money. Those two things have become the great controllers of our world. And religion has some good to it. I want to emphasize that. There is some good in there when you read some of the old writings. 
But then there's a lot of deception and control mixed in. So it's hard for me to totally, I don't, I really don't encourage people to just go jump over modern Christianity and a lot of the modern teachings that are taught in the, in the certain religions around the world. Go as far back as you can. I would, I would recommend people study Gnosticism and go look into the ancient Greek and Hermetic. I'll look into all this ancient Egyptian knowledge as well. That's where I think the more pure sides of this come from. And so what happened? Well, Unfortunately, these elite families that were completely corrupted decided that their bloodline was superior to all, everyone else. And so what they did is they decided to deceive everybody and control these different aspects of our world. And so that's why there's so much darkness that exists in our world today. We are, um, we're not, we're not living in an evil hell, but we're in a, we're in a state of consciousness where there are certain people and they are people who are dis deliberately deceiving us and controlling every aspect of our history and our consciousness to, to control this information and then bombard us with wireless signals and viruses and all these things that can really hold us back from reaching these higher states. Cause they want this system to continue. It is the system. It's the system of money-making. It's a system of controlling people's minds and thoughts to keep them as productive workers and nothing more. And that's that's what this whole system is. The perpetuality of that system is the entire purpose behind this, this whole thing here. It's to keep that system going. And they're going to do whatever it takes to keep the system going. It's not in a beneficial way. It's in a malevolent way. And so I don't advocate for the entire system to be just shut down because that would be like total anarchy in our world. But instead, we need to transform these systems at gradually over time, one step at a time from education to understanding spirituality, not thinking that it's just some hippie crap that someone's teaching, but really bring back the aspects of what really makes up our existence in this, in this um, non-physical and physical reality and what, and what part we play here. So what I want to really get across, and I, I want to, in part, as we, as we conclude here is don't look at the deception, the darkness here is something that that holds you back and makes you feel empty inside. Look at it as the challenge that we are overcoming to become better right here. They're not going to win. They're not going to because this entire cycle of human consciousness is so much more important and so much bigger than they are. They're simply puppets that are holding, that are playing a certain role here and they will lose. We are you can only keep that simmering pot of consciousness on for so long and we will break out these these certain tactics that are used to hold us back they're only going to affect us for so long because i really do think that even if some people aren't totally awake like maybe a lot of the other individuals that we have on this on this chat right now are at least they're changing their mindsets about certain pieces of it over time and i think that's what you're seeing with a lot of holidays changing slowly and certain um, viewpoints of statues and individuals in history, we're starting to really change our minds about how we view those things. It's a baby step thing. It's a baby step thing and it's all going to lead to a better place. And I think that's the takeaway I want people to get across is don't, you know, have this, this darkness and deception really get you down. See it as a challenge. 
see it as a challenge where we as individuals with the power of, of social media and the ability to interact and with so many individuals from all around the world, like all these conscious individuals right now that are talking right now in this chat, they're from all over the world and they're all playing a part in this. And I think that's what we should see it as. Don't, don't let it affect you negatively. Be stronger than that. Go allow your light to be strong enough where you, you can go out and meditate and spend time with yourself to feel like you can be a beacon out there. And if you're not ready, then don't take it on. Don't wait until you're ready. You know, see it, see this reality as a school, a school of teaching. And you look at that and try to take, take lessons away from it rather than it being something that causes you to give up and to, to decide to not take that difficult, challenging road where, where, you know, some individuals don't decide to never talk to you again. You lose friends, you lose family, thinks you're crazy. Some board, that stuff doesn't matter because those people, if they really truly cared about you, should accept you for being open-minded and being, and having a different type of viewpoint, not hating you because you see things in a different way than they do, than the collective consciousness. Well, I just want to uh, um, just inform everybody again that um, we have quite a few mastermind discussions that are being planned for the future coming up. If this is a type of um, environment that you liked, a, a live show with me taking questions and discussing it, we can do it again sometime. That's why I call this fireside chats, plural, because we, we could do it again if we wanted. And next time I'll try to make sure I get that fire up on the background so it looks a little more genuine. Um, but again, coming up, we have the Forbidden News Con, which I'll be, I'll be doing two shows in that. And we have Brian Forrester coming on in May, as long as we can get flights all back to, uh, on schedule here. And we'll get other individuals on the future as well. Um, let me try to get, I'm going to get Gerald Clark on here eventually. Um, a lot of really good individuals looking, contacting them right now. And if you're in contact with someone who wants to be part of part of the show or you think should really be a part of the show, you know, let me know. And cause I like having these discussions with everybody and covering so many different topics. So I really want to say thank you again to everybody. I really enjoyed this last hour and a half. This was a really, really cool being able to talk to so many different people. And what I'll do is any of the questions that didn't get answered in here, I can try to answer in the chat in uh, when this video goes up and, and we can even carry them over potentially to another fireside chat if that's another uh, another good route for us to take. So everyone try to stay as positive as you can. You can realize that this is an incredible time to be here right now in this state of change where we can go outside and go talk to someone and completely change their life, completely change their entire path in life and, and take it in baby steps. Try to find individuals that are worth saving, that have those open-minded approaches where they can understand this. Even if they don't understand this information because they haven't studied it, as long as they're open-minded, try to see it as a challenge where how do you impart this information in such a way where you don't overwhelm someone else? You're able to stick these little nuggets of truth in, like throw something like the Dogen at them with Sirius, throw something like these megalithic lost civilization structures around the world where the types of rock that has been built is so hard that it would be impossible on the Mohs hardness scale to be carved with something that's less. Throw the fact that at them the fact that we have all these emotions in these, in these certain states that we can't uh, measure. So then how can we quantitatively understand who we are if there's all these states of us like love and hate that are, that are not measurable? It's the same. It's just, it's just like consciousness. So 
there's there's so many different ways to approach this. You can approach it from the solar system, talking about pioneer data and that we're being lied to about certain aspects of that, to spirituality, lost civilizations, philosophy. You can, you can go any route you want to take. The challenge is that individual can only be approached in a certain kind of way that which won't make them run away and to cause them to reject the message. And so that's I hope I that's what I want to leave everybody with is see everything as a little challenge to figure out how to approach it. Because in the end, in, in my opinion, even you changing one person's life in a small way is a huge contribution here. So let's try to remain positive during this difficult time. And hey, a lot of us are cooped up inside. What better time to study all this stuff, right? You haven't, oh, I haven't had the time to, to really read a lot of these ancient tablets. Now we have some of that time. So let's utilize some of that time wisely and delve into some of these mysteries of the past. Because to me, the answers to everything can be found in the past.